people can do amazing things, walk on the moon, contain a nuclear meltdown. And what do they have in common? They're not in it alone. Creativity, talent, genius, it's all a team sport. We have seen what we thought was unseeable. It was a step in a direction that nobody had taken before. I'm Gabriella Cowperthwaite, host of Teamistry. It's an original podcast from Atlassian, all about the chemistry of teams. Check it out on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated, and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Dominic Ford. Hello, Dominic. Hello, and this week, how the Earth's core has been changing how we measure time, how nerves cause cancer to spread, and we get heated over solar power as we find out how to cross the Australian outback in a solar car and how a technology can empower communities. If you'd like to get in touch with us, then empower yourself and email chris at thenakedscientists.com. You can tweet at Naked Scientists or you can find us on our Facebook page. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk. And first up, let's take a look at this week's science headlines. And kicking off, I've got a story about how scientists in the States have come up with a solar-powered medical steriliser. Now, this is Naomi Hallas, who's a researcher at Rice University, and it's published this week in the journal PNAS. And what this group have done is to develop a device which can produce steam at 140 degrees C from even water which is sitting on ice. And they're doing it using nanoparticles. So they have a small flask and they add a few million of these gold nano shells. Down a microscope, they look like tiny dots. They're effectively little particles of gold, which are about one five thousandth of a millimetre across each. And they have the ability to absorb a very broad range of light wavelengths. And when they absorb that light, turn it into heat. This has the effect of making the particle very hot, and this heats up the water immediately around the particle, turning it into a tiny bubble of steam. This means that you then insulate the particle from the rest of the water around it, so that the steam can then become very, very hot, because the particle continues to absorb energy. You then get a bubble, so it pulls the particle to the surface of the flask, and the steam comes out, and that steam is at up to 140 degrees. And you can then direct that jet of steam onto, say, a sterilisation box where you can put medical instruments or contaminated things that you want to sterilise, and it works. They have uh, actually tried it on something called Geobacillus thermophilus, which is a test organism. It's a bacterium that you put into autoclaves to demonstrate that they're working properly, and in tests they found it could deactivate this bacterium completely in just a few minutes. And the point is that this uses nothing more than the sun. It's very cheap. You could deploy it in the middle of the outback 
So remote places with no electricity can now sterilise medical instruments using this device. So how fast is it? It took five minutes in their device which is doing it under pressure or 31 minutes in the device where they're just directing the steam flow because it's not under pressure at a slightly lower temperature. What was cool was the water flask they were doing it on could even be on a bath of ice and you've got 140 degrees steam coming out of this. Is it useful that steam is so hot at 140 degrees? Is that killing more pathogens than steam at 100 degrees C would? uh, that's right but also you're packing much more energy because as soon as the very hot steam hits the thing it heats it up but then it condenses and as soon as it condenses back into a liquid you release a bigger burst of energy which imparts a bigger thump to the organism and that deactivates it so there are some organisms that that live around hydrothermal vents and can survive things at hundreds of degrees uh, more than 100 degrees plus you've got some proteins and other chemicals that are stable at very high temperatures if you get the energy right up to 140 degrees this is judged to be sterilising, not just cleansing, but actually sterilising and deactivating temperatures. Thanks, Chris. Now, I've been looking at a story which has to do with how long days are on our planet, the Earth. And, of course, there's a really obvious answer to that, that days, we all know, are 24 hours long. But at a more deep and fundamental level, of course, the sun rises and sets each day because our planet is rotating and the 24-hour period of the day is the period of rotation of our planet. Now, if the Earth were rotating at a steady rate, they would always be exactly the same length, but this is a spinning ball in space, and things can exert rotational pulls on that planet and change the speed at which it rotates. And there are quite a lot of different processes that can affect that rotation, and a paper in Nature this week, written by Richard Holmes from the University of Liverpool and his colleagues, tries to disentangle what some of these processes are, by looking at historical data taken over the last 40 years of how the Earth had been rotating. How much of a difference are we talking about in terms of the length of a day? We're talking thousandths of a second at most. So a long time then? Well, it actually adds up so that over a couple of years that can add up to a second and that becomes something you can measure with a clock. If you're looking at where the sun is in the sky, you can start to notice if you've got a very good telescope that the sun is slightly behind where it ought to be. So what do these guys predict or say is going on? There are all sorts of processes going on on different timescales. On very short timescales, there's weather, there's ocean currents that affect the Earth's rotation on a day-to-day basis. On longer timescales, the Earth is made up of different radial layers. You have a liquid core and then you have a solid mantle. And those are rotating at different speeds. And as they transfer rotation between them, that affects how fast the outer crust of the Earth is rotating. And on the very longest timescales, the Moon, the Earth's companion in space, is gradually draining the Earth's rotational energy. And that means that days are getting longer over periods of tens of millions of years. But what's really fascinating, three times in the last 40 years, the Earth has suddenly changed its speed of rotation in 1969, 72 and 78. And that was at exactly the same time as the Earth's magnetic field shifted. And the Earth's magnetic field is produced by the Earth's core. And so they predict that this is presumably also a phenomenon coming from the centre of the Earth. So what they think is that perhaps there are bits of solid material in amongst this molten material at the centre of the Earth. If that is catching against the solid mantle above it, then when that catches, you have a sort of earthquake very close to the Earth's core that's affecting both the Earth's rotation and its magnetic field. And so that might be what caused these blips in the Earth's rotation. So when you say there was a blip, what actually do you mean by that? 
Well, the Earth has this magnetic field which is very closely aligned to its rotation axis. If you get a compass out, it points to somewhere which is close to the North Pole, but it's offset by a couple of degrees. And if you have a very sensitive magnetic field measuring device, you can measure how strong that field is. But from time to time, that field is gradually changing, and sometimes it shows a very dramatic shift in either its direction or in its magnitude. And that suggests something's going on in the Earth's core where this field is being generated. So by looking at the rotation of the Earth, you are slowly, I suppose, getting a proxy measure for how this field may be generated and what's going on right in the centre of the Earth. Yeah, I mean, obviously we can't explore the centre of the Earth and the magnetic field is actually one of the very few things we can measure that's coming out of that centre of the Earth. So this is telling us something about a part of the planet we don't understand terribly well. Well, something else which we didn't understand terribly well but we're getting better at is in vitro fertilisation. And this week, Connor Levy became the first IVF baby to be born using a DNA screening technique, which is called next-generation sequencing. This is a new way that can check how healthy embryos are before they're actually implanted. Here's the quick-fire science on IVF and next-generation sequencing with Kate Lamble and Claudia F. Stathieu. IVF stands for in vitro fertilisation and is used to overcome infertility in couples wishing to become pregnant. In IVF, an egg is taken and fertilised by sperm outside the body. The newly formed embryo is then implanted in the uterus of either the biological mother or a surrogate, where the pregnancy can continue as normal. Louise Brown was the first baby born through IVF in 1978. Since then, thousands of families have undergone the procedure. Despite being so popular, IVF is not always successful. It can also lead to multiple births if more than one embryo is implanted and all survive. One cycle of IVF costs around £5,000. In the UK, the NHS offers up to three cycles of IVF to women under 40. Genetic screening can be carried out to check for specific genetic diseases which may affect quality of life, like cystic fibrosis, so that only healthy embryos are implanted. Next-generation sequencing, used on Connor Levy, takes a more general approach, sequencing around 2% of the embryo's DNA. This can reveal the number of chromosomes in the embryo, as abnormal chromosomes are one of the most common reasons for miscarriage. This new screening technique can increase the success rate of IVF by up to 50%. This should limit the number of cycles needed before success, saving people money and heartache. Opponents have suggested that this is another step towards designer babies, where embryos could be chosen based on traits such as hair colour, height or intelligence. The inventor of the technique has said that he can't imagine people wanting to go through the strains of IVF for something so trivial. But it has been suggested that laws may be altered so that only genes linked to disease could be screened. Claudia F. Stathew and Kate Lamble with this week's Quick Fire Science, which you can also download separately as its own podcast from our website, nakedscientists.com slash quickfirescience. More news now, and we're joined by Phil Broadwith from Chemistry World magazine. Now, Phil, you've got a story about how turmeric can help tackle cancer. Yes, Dominic, and not only turmeric, but also thalidomide, which is, as most people know, a drug that caused a lot of problems in the 1950s and 60s when it was prescribed to pregnant ladies and caused a lot of birth defects. But actually, both turmeric and thalidomide can kill cancer cells in a particular kind of cancer called multiple myeloma, which is a blood cancer. And actually, thalidomide is being prescribed as a drug in its own right. So what's the link between turmeric and thalidomide? Well, what Shi Dunjiang at the Virginia Commonwealth University in the US has done is actually physically bond the two molecules together. So he's taken thalidomide 
and part of the curcumin molecule from turmeric and combine them into a single molecule by taking the whole of the thalidomide and part of curcumin and, and bonding them together to make a new drug molecule. This gets over several of the problems because thalidomide itself is degraded in the body quite quickly and curcumin is not very soluble, so it's very difficult to get enough of it into a person's body to have any kind of anti-cancer effect. But by combining the two molecules together, you block some of the ways that thalidomide would be degraded and you make the curcumin significantly more soluble, so it's easier to turn into a proper drug. What state is this at? Has it been through clinical trials and so on? We're still at the very much at the proof of concept stage. You know, what the guys wanted to try and find out is does combining these two molecules actually give you a better drug? And what they've done is they've made a variety of different hybrids. One or two of them have been tested in animals and do kill the multiple myeloma cells. So that's a start. I think if they were going to get to the stage of getting to a, a real drug, they'd need to test something a little bit more active. But it's kind of going in the right direction. So we're still a long way from any kind of real drug. Does this make you go orange, like turmeric does? Funny you should say that, Chris. As far as I know, the compound isn't very orange. And also, on the flip side of that, we don't know whether or not it would also have the teratogenic effects of thalidomide because you know, the chemistry is still there, but adding that extra bit on the other end might stop it from binding to the whichever receptor it is that's causing that. One so, of those drugs that obviously has a terrible past attached to it, and that's sort of meant that people are a little bit unwilling to use it when in certain circumstances like cancer, it is a fantastic treatment. Yes, and hopefully, you know, when you're giving somebody cancer chemotherapy, they're not pregnant, so you eliminate that problem anyway. Phil, thank you very much. This is Phil Broadwith from Chemistry World. Well, sticking with the story of cancer, one of the most common cancers in men is prostate cancer. And in fact, it may worry some people to hear that in fact, by the age of about 80, the incidence of prostate cancer in that population is 100%. If you look hard enough, you will find the disease in pretty much everybody. It doesn't mean it will lead to the death of everybody, but it is extremely common. Scientists at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York have got a paper in Science this week which sheds some interesting light, actually, on what might be driving these cancers, though, because that's one of the big questions. Why do they grow and develop and spread? And what they have found is that the patient's own nervous system might be triggering this to happen. Claire Magnan and her colleagues have done studies on initially mice where they took mice and put human prostate cancer cells into the mouse prostate. So the mouse develops its own prostate cancer, albeit a human one. And then they look later at what the nerve supply, which is naturally in the prostate, is doing. And they find that within a short period of time, the nerves in the prostate, which are parts of what is called the autonomic nervous system, this is the automatic or unconscious branch of your nervous system, has grown into the tumour. So to see whether this actually makes a difference to the behaviour of the tumour, they used either drugs or surgery to block the action of the autonomic nervous system. And they find that the tumour stops growing and it doesn't spread to other parts of the animal. And they then do some other very elegant experiments where they block both the sympathetic, which is the part of the autonomic nervous system that uses adrenaline as a nerve transmitter, or acetylcholine, which is the nerve transmitter used by the parasympathetic part of the autonomic nervous system. And they're able to show that the adrenaline signal makes tumour cells grow in the prostate locally, and the acetylcholine signal encourages the tissue to spread to other parts of the body and to become invasive. 
This is just in mice, admittedly, but then they ask, well, what happens if we look in humans with prostate cancer? So they go and obtain 43 different prostate samples from human cases and look at them, and they show there's a really strong correspondence between people who are judged to have what's called a high-grade prostate cancer and also people who've had spread of their prostate cancer and how much nerve growth into the tumour there has been. And so they're saying that it appears the tumour encourages the nervous system to grow in to the tumour. Chemicals produced by those nerve cells encourage either the tumour cells themselves or the local tissue to encourage the tumour to grow and to invade and spread, and that you can therefore use the degree of innovation as a marker of how advanced the disease is or how likely it is to spread. And this may also give us a new avenue for treating the disease, because if you could block these molecules that are coming out of these nerve cells, and we've got drugs that would do that, it might significantly improve the prospects of the disease. There's drugs for blocking adrenal receptors used for asthma and that kind of thing, and there's lots of acetylcholine blockers as well, so that's really promising. If, you, if those same drugs will work on the receptors inside the tumour, then you've got a, a ready-made avenue to explore. That's exactly right, Phil, and that's what they're going to try and do. They're saying, look, these drugs are already on the market. We might be able to very readily see whether this will actually apply what we're seeing in these mice in people. Well, thanks, Chris. It is really quite fascinating how some cancers spread so quickly, while others don't spread very fast at all. I've been looking at a paper about how we might be able to store carbon dioxide beneath the Earth's surface. And on paper, this is quite a neat idea, because where's the carbon dioxide that we're releasing the atmosphere coming from? Well, it's coming from burning coal and from burning oil that we're extracting from beneath the Earth's surface. So people have asked, well, could we take the carbon dioxide, which of course when releasing into the atmosphere to greenhouse gas, and put it back where that carbon came from, into the coal mines, into the oil fields, and mean that that carbon dioxide isn't having harmful effects in the atmosphere? Trouble is that are we not storing up trouble for the future? Because if we put it back down there and we don't keep it down there and it's convulsively burped up later could spell disaster because there'd be millions of tonnes coming out all at once. Yes, well, a paper written in PNAS this week by James Verdon of the University of Bristol actually looks at some of the possible things we need to worry about. And there's quite a long list of them. You can have chemical reactions beneath the Earth's surface because CO2, when it dissolves in water, is quite acidic. And you're typically storing it in chalk and limestone and so on. And so you can have chemical reactions there that can destabilise that rock beneath the Earth's surface. And if you've got a layer of material above where the carbon dioxide is, which is holding it in, if you erode that material, then it can leak up out of your pit back into the Earth's atmosphere. And if you're trying to hold this stuff for thousands of years beneath the Earth's surface, then you really don't want it to start leaking because that could have absolutely catastrophic effects in the future. So this paper actually looked at three sites where people have tried experimentally storing CO2 in oil fields where oil has been previously extracted. And they've then gone out with seismometers to look for small earthquakes. And they've done geological surveys with GPS units on the Earth's surface to see if they can find the movement of the Earth's surface above these oil fields. And in fact, the results are rather worrying, I think, because on two of these three sites they studied, they found quite a high incidence of very small earthquakes after the CO2 had been put down there. And the third site we looked at, which was in the North Sea, they didn't actually detect very much seismic activity afterwards. But that was a huge oil field that they'd only filled with about three millionths 
of its capacity with CO2. So that was quite a small amount of CO2 they put into that. How do they know that putting in the CO2 caused the earthquake and it wasn't going to happen anyway? In many ways, that's quite a worry because they're actually saying these are areas where there's been a lot of activity beneath the ground. There's been a lot of oil taken out. That in itself has created seismic activity. Now, they're not able to say very reliably what seismic activity is caused by historical mining and what activity has been caused by the new CO2 that's been put down there. But what they can say is that when the carbon dioxide was injected, there was a very sudden increase in this seismic activity. And if that's happening in year-long timescales after that CO2 has been put there, it's very hard to say that, that was going to be safe for thousands of years into the future. So I think they're saying a lot more work has to be done to make sure this is safe. The amount of CO2 we're talking about is not insubstantial, is it? I mean, we're pumping out billions of tonnes. Something like 37 billion tonnes a year was the last figure I saw, I think, of CO2, which, if we're going to stay carbon neutral, all of that would have to go back under the ground. It's huge. The other aspect of this is this is quite easy to do in power stations and so on, where you're generating all of your CO2 in one location, so you can collect it together. But obviously it doesn't work for cars because your CO2 is coming out of vehicles distributed all across the country. And so collecting that is pretty much impossible. Well, maybe the people we'll be talking to in a moment who are actually striving to use solar power to power cars will provide a solution to that. Thank you, Dominic. If you'd like to follow up on any of the references and the original papers for the news stories we've discussed so far today, then you can find them on our website at nakedscientists.com slash news. This is for Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with me, Dominic Ford. Now, later this year, the World Solar Challenge will see 47 teams from 26 countries racing across the Australian outback from Darwin to Adelaide in purpose-built solar-powered cars. To complete this 3,000-kilometre-long journey, the teams have to design a lightweight vehicle that can use solar panels to travel at 80 kilometres per hour. So this is pretty nippy, but in one of the world's most harsh conditions and terrains. Here to tell us about their entry are two members from the Cambridge team, Cambridge University Eco Racing, and that's Stephen Pendry and also Peter Milden. Hello to both of you. Hi. First of all, tell us a bit about the race, Peter. How did it get started and how did Cambridge University get involved? So the World Solar Challenge has been going on since the 80s when it was first set up and teams have been entering cars every two years since then. Cambridge first entered back in 2009 for the first time with our car, Endeavour, We did okay. We were about two-thirds down the pecking order at that point. We then did some work to redevelop Endeavour and sent her back in 2011. And there was a small improvement, but due to some things like bushfires, the race was slightly disrupted and the finishing position was, again, about two-thirds of the way down. So for this year, we are building a completely new car. We've got a completely new concept, and we're hoping that that's going to mean that we can fight for the top step of the podium this year round. Fighting talk. Stephen, what's the new technology you're introducing to win you pole position? So when you're designing a new car, the two main important aspects of it are to look at the solar and also the aero. So you're looking into the power into the car and the losses out of it. What most cars before do is they try to focus on the solar and increase it as much as they can and then try to fit the aerodynamics around that. What we've done with ours is we've completely decoupled the two effects and mainly focused on the aerodynamics and then afterwards fit the solar cells inside the body of the car inside a clear chassis. 
And then obviously the actual solar area for this is much smaller. So we've then decided to actually get the solar cells and to track the sun from east to west throughout the day. Oh, how ingenious, because when you normally see people, they've basically turned a car into a mobile solar panel to maximise the collecting area. But there will, of course, be some bits of panel that are not really in the sun at all. So they're just adding weight and contributing nothing. So you're saying let's go for just a tight, light, small, compact solar collecting area, but make it directional. Uh, Yes, definitely. The key point for this is that the efficiency is gained by about 20% and we're using a much smaller and therefore cheaper array than what we would have done if we wanted the same efficiency with the same cells outside. So how are you going to track the sun? So have you got the panel at the front of the car, back of the car? Where is it mounted and how will it make sure it's at maximum efficiency all the time? We're mainly driving from Darwin in the north to Adelaide in the south and so the sun will be directly to the north and behind us. So we have the driver sitting in the front of the car And the majority of the solar cells are behind the driver, basically down a long central pole. And these rotate around that axis, basically going around from east to west. So if they reverse the finishing line, you're going to have to do the race backwards? Uh, Yes, we actually will. We would have a much bigger problem if we were going back up further north. We would be at a slight disadvantage there. What's the energy consumption of the vehicle when it's doing 80 kilometres an hour? That's some speed. So around about our race speed, which is somewhere between 80 and 90 kilometres an hour, we'll be draining about one kilowatt. It depends on the time of the day as to how much power is coming in from your array and how much is going to be charging up or draining the battery that we have. So we do have the battery there to sort of stabilise the total power consumption. So that means, yeah, in terms of driving at our race target speed, we're looking at about a kilowatt. Whereas in the middle of the day, we'll be getting more power in, and obviously in the morning and the evening, it'll be slightly less. So you mentioned that there's a battery there. How sensitive is it to if there is a cloudy day? Because, I mean, in Australia, you should be pretty okay. It should be pretty sunny all the time. But if it does sort of get cloudy or, or dark, how much will that encumber you? We actually have a few people looking into the race strategy and we get weather data in that we can work out what the optimum solution is going to be in that situation. So our battery has got about five kilowatt hours worth of energy in it. That will allow us to drive at our race speed for five hours or slower for a prolonged period of time. If we know that we're going to be in cloud for the next entire day, we'll probably drive slower. Whereas if we know that there's sun coming at the end of the day or if there's sun further ahead on the road, we can actually afford to speed up a bit, use up some of our five kilowatt hours worth of energy and then get to the sun quicker. Stephen, what is the car made of? The majority of the chassis is a carbon fibre monocoque chassis, which basically means that the membrane just on the outside can take all the structural loads And it also ensures that the car is as lightweight as possible. How much does it weigh? It's about 120 kilograms without the driver. And then we say about 200 kilograms with the driver. Do you have to be really small to drive this car like Um, the Cambridge Cox and the boat race? You select for small people? So, I mean, I'm five foot ten and I can actually fit in the car. Not for the race itself. I wouldn't be legal for the race. However, I can actually and have driven the car myself. It's going to get pretty hot in there, isn't it? It does get very, very hot, yes. No air con on there, so... What do you do about that? The heat is very bad for both the driver and also for the solar cells. We have some active cooling, so we have fans going through to try to cool both of them down. I wouldn't like to be in that car. (laughs) What about, though, Peter, the sort of wider implications of this? So I think the key thing that our solar-powered cars are looking at is, again, in efficiency. So if we look at a typical road car, it'll run at about 40 kilowatts. We're driving at comparable speeds on one kilowatt, so we're more than an order of magnitude more efficient than a normal car. To put that into some perspective, our battery is quite small. It's limited by the rules. We could easily have a battery four or five times the size of that. But if we were to drive at around 30 miles an hour, we could go about 800 kilometres with no solar panels on the car whatsoever and basically therefore beat most petrol-driven cars in terms of range. 
So the key thing here is where we're getting the efficiency savings from. If you could transfer them into a normal car, you would see, even if it was still a petrol car, a significant reduction in emissions. We'll be thinking of you. Thank you very much. Stephen Pendry and Peter Milden there from Cambridge University Eco Racing. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Dominic Ford and with me, Chris Smith. We'll be sticking with solar power for the rest of the show because we'll be finding out about the latest developments in solar panels and whether algae can offer a natural alternative to harness the sun's energy. First, though, we're joined by Agamemnon Otero, a co-founder of Repowering London and of Brixton Energy, which is delivering energy to London communities through renewable energy farms that are owned cooperatively by those communities. Agamemnon, you say that solar power can empower these communities. What does that mean exactly? Well, in that way, it's power to, for and by the people. The vision is really resilience to provide training and work apprenticeships around solar, but also to create local leadership and draft-proofing education, energy-switching information, and that's what encourages behavior change. So the solar panels are just a mechanism which provides a financial revenue stream for the next 20 to 25 years, which enables and empowers the community. So it's got quite an important educational role in that people are learning how to manage a project like this. Presumably it's also helping them to save money on their electricity bills. Yeah, in that way I'd say that the most vulnerable communities in London and for that matter throughout the UK pay some of the highest amount for their energy. And about 6 million people use prepay cards, and that they're paying about 300 to £400 pounds a year more than most people. We are working directly with low-income housing throughout London, and these projects supply the communal areas and reduce the service charge. So is the money going to the individuals who own these cells, mm. or is it all going to the cooperative? The cooperatives are on whole housing associations, for instance, in Lambeth, they're on the Rupert Park Estate or Loughborough Park, Brixton Hill. And the communal lighting, the elevators, the lifts, the community centre, the community office, all are being powered by the energy. And so, therefore, the energy bill for the overall estate is reduced, and that is passed on by the estate management board. I guess there is uncertainty there, though, because if you've got a beautiful sunny week like we've had in the UK in the last week... That's presumably going to generate a lot of electricity. But then you have other whole months when it's wet across the UK. Yeah. For instance, today there was about 280 kilowatts generated on one solar system. And so of the three systems, there was about 750 to 800 kilowatts generated today, which was enough to provide 180 homes worth of energy. On sunny days, it can be quite powerful and generate enough for all the residents that live in in the buildings where we have solar panels. But on days like Mordor, it still generates a bit of energy. Only when it's dark does it actually stop generating. So even on cloudy days, which we have so many of, we are generating energy. I mean, we outperformed last year by 25% on all of our systems, even though it was quite a rainy and cloudy summer. So how do you pick the communities you work with and how many cooperatives have you set up so far? The cooperatives are based on community engagement. And so when people are enthusiastic about renewables and about having a resilient community and they're looking for uh, more than just a way of generating money but thinking about CO2 reduction and tackling fuel poverty and creating jobs, we are asked to work with them. 
the different communities who've come to a fair have actually come of their own accord. It started outside my house in Brixton and has moved slowly through that from word of mouth, from one community member to another. I think the thing to remember about these projects is that while they don't directly reduce individual energy bills, what they do do is provide financial revenue and 20% of the revenue goes back to the community annually for the next 20 years. And in that, there's energy switching and draft proofing. And the draft proofing can make 40% reduction in the energy bill. And on the energy switching can also make savings of 30%. So overall savings can be up to 70% of the energy bill. So I guess my instinct would be that environmental concerns tend to be quite a middle-class worry and that perhaps some of these communities who are in fuel poverty, it wouldn't be top of their list of concerns. But you seem to be saying these communities are actually coming to you for help. It's amazing how you can think these things up in glass towers and the uptake is not successful. But the whole process of making it a cooperative, which is an iterative process because everybody has to come together and say, this is something we believe in. This is something we want. And to have something, they have to have a vision. And that's pretty much a scoping exercise that happens throughout the process where we have energy surveys to find out what are the needs of that community. And in that way, they have come to us to say, this is what we want to do. And there's been a real big push for young people, especially in Brixton, where the first projects were. With the riots, there was real question around hooded youths who are perpetrating these bad things on society, when actually there are young people who are incredibly intelligent and want to be a part of society. And they have been engaged through the internship process. We have a 15-week internship process, and then they do paid work experience on the roofs to work with contractors and putting in the solar panels. So that has got some of the most amazing community activists, people who've been working for 30, 40 years, to say, come, please, work with our young people. Let's try to create a system together, co-produce something, which can engage not only the young people, middle-aged people who are out of work, maybe working in electrical engineering, but also vulnerable elderly about how do we use our boiler systems and reduce our energy consumption. Well, it's obviously great you're giving them that opportunity. Very quickly, are you looking to set up more of these cooperatives and is there somewhere where people can go to find out more? Yeah, we're, we've got a bunch of projects in the pipeline, but right now we have our third project, which is on the Rupal Park Estate, and it's an open for investment. And it gives, you get a 50% tax back, that's a 4% return, and it, you know that it engages and empowers communities with work apprenticeships and paid work experience. So yeah, if people want to invest, go to repoweringlondon.org.uk, and it's a non-profit, and they can become part of the next cooperative. Thanks, Agamemnon, and obviously good luck with those projects. That was Agamemnon Artero from Repowering London. Now, we've all got an image in our heads of solar panels comprising of rows and rows of shining blue sheets. But can algae, which naturally harvest the sun's energy for their own energy needs, offer us a more natural alternative to solar power? We're joined by Bob Lovett from Swansea University, who worked on this very problem through a European project called N-Algae. Now, first of all, Bob, why algae in particular? Algae offer a very productive way of capturing light and converting it CO2 into biomass, which can then be used in a number of ways to make energy or chemicals and so on. And compared to normal green plants, they're very productive People say 
of the order of 10 times more productive. So if you think about a unit area of land, these organisms will produce significantly more amount of biomass compared to, say, normal green plants. So once you've used the sunlight to grow this mass of algae, what do you actually do with them? That's a very interesting question because there are lots of things you can do with them. You, you can basically dry them and burn them to get your energy back as heat or you can refine the materials into protein as a feed, then use those to generate energy, or you can actually sell the algae as feed for fish and things like this in farming situations. I guess when I think of algae, I think of blooms in the ocean. If I remember rightly, there was a massive bloom in China just before the Olympics a few years ago. Why are you growing it in farms rather than just fishing it out of the ocean? Normally, when you get algal blooms, the first thing is that, that they can be very harmful. A lot of algae of the wrong sort contain toxins, and these toxins can be, if you've got a water, say, desalination plant, and you want to make drinking water out of seawater, if you have these algal blooms, they can actually contaminate the water and so on and cause really serious problems. Also, if you look at the natural systems, they're mixed systems, they're basically naturally selected and, and consequently uh, optimal maybe for growth in those certain conditions, but they don't make the products that make potentially more value out of the algae. I guess any solar power generation scheme, what's important is how much sunlight you're collecting. Mm. So presumably, have you got a farm somewhere with a huge collecting area of sunlight? We basically are working in what we call photobioreactors, and these are contained systems as opposed to raceway systems, which is another way of doing it. Basically, large areas of uh, water looking like canals about 30 centimetres deep. You, you know, you can get at this stage two or three hectares of these are used to generate the algae. We go for photobioreactors, which are different. They're basically pipes. They're slightly more efficient in the way they operate. And we can contain the algae themselves in a, a much better way and control what we're doing with them. Raceways are far more um, open to contamination. You can get a duck swimming across the top of the algal pond and so on. And this means that, as like any other farming process, if you get contamination, you have to control that. And so within a raceway, there are a number of problems associated with that which you can avoid if you go to a photobioreactor. You said at the start that algae are much more efficient than other forms of biofuel. What's the difference between covering these two or three hectares with algae versus planting crops that you might then go and burn? The main differences are that you would need to supply the nutrients that they require far more intensively. This means that we need sources of carbon dioxide like power stations. We need nutrients like phosphate and ammonia and other nitrogen sources which we get from sewage wastewater treatment systems where we're cleaning up the water, remove the nitrogen phosphorus. What we can do is integrate these processes to effectively combine the waste products, if you like, of these processes to make algae. The fact is what we're doing is by integrating with waste processes at the same time, we can make much better use of nutrients and so on. You're killing two birds with one stone, you're exactly. dealing with the CO2 and you're also getting useful energy out of it. Yes. How do you harvest the energy out of this at the end? There's a number of ways in which you, you do that. Basically, 
the calorific value of algae is about, I think it's 20, 28 megajoules per kilogram, something like that. And if you burn the waste, that's what you get in a calorimeter when you burn algae. If you think about it, that energy is the raw energy. But what you're also doing here is you can make carbon materials, which replace other forms of energy, if you like. If you're going to make plastics and so on, you, you start with a fossil carbon. You can substitute that carbon from algae into those manufacturing processes. So you, you effectively save a lot of energy that way because you're, you're using the embedded energy that's fixed in the organisms to make a substitute for other energy forms, really. Am I often thinking that the facility you've got at the moment is actually a test? How are you going to scale that up to industrial production? The way we're doing this is that we take what we call a biorefinery approach, which is that you cannot expect to make money from the energy that you're capturing using the algae. If you look at the amount of energy you put into the system compared to the amount of energy you get out of it, i.e. the energy you put in is things like the ammonia you need, the pumping power you need, and so on, to move the liquids around. And you compare that with the energy you get out of the system, then you, what you find is you're around 1.3, 1.5 energy return. In other words, you, you're not making a big energy surplus. But what you are doing is fixing CO2, and you're making chemicals from that. Effectively, very little energy releasing CO2. So you've got a low-carbon way of doing things. So you're essentially making the power stations cleaner, which are providing the CO2 to the process. That's right. And then the other approach we're taking is we're taking things like anaerobic digesters, and you take the waste products from an anaerobic digester that's maybe set up in a combined heat and power system where you basically take waste materials, you digest them, you make the methane. We can then burn the methane in an engine, and then we can take the CO2 from that engine and put it into an algal bioreactor. At the same time, we can then take the residuals, the nitrogen and phosphate residuals from the anaerobic digester, and we can put that into the reactor. And so you then generate all the nutrients, basically, from the anaerobic digester. So effectively, what you've done is you've recycled a lot of the waste nutrients back into the algae. We can then refine the algae, basically remove the protein, and we can make a animal feed or something from that protein, while the rest, the remaining waste material, can be put back into the digester. So what you're doing here is you're using a lot of waste materials that need to be removed from the environment anyway, and certainly anaerobic digestion is now being seen as the way to get rid of food waste rather than put it in landfill and things like that. So you need another technology then on the end of the anaerobic digester to absorb the nutrients and then make new materials, which then go back into the system to make food. So you, you've basically closed the loop on the whole process of uh, nutrient flows in the environment. It's great that you can make something useful from this waste CO2. Thanks. That was Bob Lovett from the University of Swansea. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Dominic Ford. How can we make our current solar panel technology more efficient? Well, Doug Chrissy from Tulane University in New Orleans is developing something called magnetohydrodynamic solar panels. Sounds like a bit of a mouthful, but let's find out how it works. Doug, tell us more. A magnetohydrodynamic generator is quite a bit different from a photovoltaic. In a photovoltaic, you're taking a narrow slice 
of the spectrum of solar radiation and converting that directly into electrical power in a solid state. And you usually get about 20% efficiency. With magnetohydrodynamic power generation, we want to take that solar radiation and concentrate it to a high temperature and create a plasma, and a plasma that we send through a magnetic field. And uh, the magnetic field will separate the positive and negative charges, and we can get about 60% efficiency. Well, that's quite uh, impressive. So can we just look at how this works then? So you've mentioned there are photovoltaic cells, and you've said when photons of light hit those, they cause charges to separate. You're doing it slightly differently. You're heating something to make a plasma where you have charged particles. So first of all, what are you heating to make the plasma? We're heating a channel that contains the gas that has material like cesium that's easy to ionize. And then we take that hot gas and send it through an expansion nozzle through a magnetic field. And at that point, we can take and uh, produce the plasma and separate the positive from the negative charges. So, so as the, the gas is going through that nozzle and you've got these positive and negative charges, because plus and minus charges are sensitive to a magnetic field, they can be guided in one direction or the other, meaning you can presumably push them onto a conductor, which becomes negative and another conductor effectively becomes positive and, and then you've got a, an accumulation of charge with a potential difference. That's correct. So how does this actually then get deployed? How do you get the light into that channel, and how much energy can you make this way? Well, the amount of energy you can make is is just dependent on how much radiation you take and focus on this channel. So the direct answer to your question is it's very scalable. It can be a small size or it can be large. We envision something as small as what would fit inside perhaps a container, like on a container ship. So that's still relatively large, but still that's uh, easily deployed to different locations like, oh, natural disasters or war zones or developing countries. So it's a nice way to have power right away. And once, by the way, once the sun goes down and photovoltaics stop working, we can take and heat this channel, and we won't have as much efficiency, but we'll still generate power. But it is the 60% efficiency that makes this technology very exciting. And how easy is it to actually construct an array of these so that you could then produce a big array to provide power for an environment or a factory or something like that? Well, as a scientist working in a lab, it's just engineering between the lab and actual application. So I'd like to say it's easy, but you know this technology has been around for some time. And what we're doing is just a little bit different. We're trying to improve this efficiency and actually reach the maximum efficiency by using superconducting magnets, high temperature superconductors that have trapped magnetic field in them and as such, uh, reaching very, very high overall magnetic fields on the order of 17 Tesla. So in doing that, we want to put those magnets very close to this very, very hot plasma, essentially you know, liquid nitrogen temperatures right next to something that's one-half as hot as the sun. That's quite an engineering challenge, isn't it? So how are you doing that and stopping the very, very hot thing, making the very, very cold thing become very, very hot. First of 
all, the materials we use have to be special, and, and it is very difficult. It's a, a real stacking of functionalities here in terms of needing refractory materials like ceramics as insulators, but also electrodes made from something like platinum, something that would survive these high temperatures. But to get something very cold next to something very hot, we need to have a lot of special thermal isolation. And to do that, we're using some technologies that are currently being used for electronics, such as microchannel cooling. If you make the channels of the material extremely small, they have a, a very high surface area, and then can take and absorb any of that heat and take it away so you don't warm up your magnets. And warming of the magnets was was something that was found with this approach from long ago. And if you warm up a conventional magnet, it will destroy the magnetic field as well. If you've got cesium at very high temperature, is that not risky? It's a, a dangerous material, that's correct. So I'm not going to uh, discount that. But it is a closed cycle system. If it were to break and be exposed, it would hopefully react very quickly and become an oxide and become harmless. And what would be the cost? Because one of the things that obviously drives this whole market and determines whether people will use this is what it costs. The present generation of photovoltaics are pretty pricey and they're pretty heavy. How does this device compare? I'm just not going to put a number on it. All, all I want to say is that this approach should last basically forever, except for the expendable parts. Photovoltaics you know, are lasting a lot longer than we thought, let's say 20 years or upwards of that, and that's very good. So this will last longer than that, but will be advantageous because of the 60% efficiency. So whatever the final cost is, it will be amortized over that long lifetime and that improved efficiency. Is another advantage not that photovoltaics also increasingly are making use of extremely rare and therefore extremely costly materials, which at the end of the day we're not going to have as many of the more of them we use. Whereas if you're using something which is relatively simple, like cesium, then actually you're not going to face that same challenge. That's absolutely correct, and that's a challenge with many high-tech materials these days, be it thermoelectrics, photovoltaics, or whatever. We have to start thinking about how we're going to use it, how we're going to recycle it, and how much that adds to the cost. It's a really a very good point. And dare I ask you when you think you'll surmount the various difficulties that you're currently trying to overcome? With uh, sufficient funding, we're hoping to start hearing more about it, let's say hearing more about it in three to five years, but seeing it deployed as readily, I don't expect it to be before five to ten years. Doug Chrissy from Tulane University, thank you very much. It's time for our mailbox now, and John wrote in in response to the programme you made from the National Astronomy Meeting last week, Dominic, and he's referring to the mysterious dark matter interview you did with Catherine Haymans at the University of Edinburgh, and he said that she left quite a few questions unanswered. Obviously, there's a limit to what you can pack into a seven-minute piece, but he goes on to point out that Catherine explained that galaxies must have lots of mass that we can't see, and he speculates, could this be failed stars that haven't quite formed, or black holes? Yes, he's basically right. I mean, we did have to move very fast in that interview because dark matter is a vast subject. There are whole books written about the topic. But Catherine was saying there is clearly something in our galaxy that has a lot of mass to it 
but that we can't see, that isn't producing any light. Now, in the past, people have thought that could be failed stars, that could be black holes. But if it was in the form of compact objects like that, you'd expect those objects from time to time to pass in front of stars in the night sky. And that's actually a detectable phenomenon. It's called microlensing, and there were surveys looking for it. And while we have seen that phenomenon happening, it's quite rare. And that tells us the number of those compact bodies is quite small. So most of this mass must be in another form, which we think is quite diffuse. And that's these wimps that Catherine was talking about. We don't know what they are, but that's what Catherine's going after to try and identify. Wimps. Wimps, weakly interacting massive particles. Dominic, thank you. If you'd like to interact with our mailbox, we'd love to hear from you. Just email chris at thenakedscientist.com. Now, we've had an email from Tad Davison who wrote in to say that he suffers from hay fever. I can certainly sympathise there. I do myself, and I've been surviving off antihistamines for most of this week. But Tad said that he was once told that his allergy would, in time, give way to cardiovascular disorder, and that those who experience allergies in early life are more susceptible to coronary artery disease. Now, Chris, is this a proven medical fact that allergies do indeed give way to coronary artery disease? This is an interesting question. You have to be very careful how you phrase the statement because there's a difference between association and causation. Does having an allergy cause heart disease or does one go hand in hand with the other? At the moment, we can't say. One study that was done, and it was done by a guy called John Go Kim. He's at the Albert Einstein Medical Centre in Philadelphia. And what he did was to look at some data that had been collected for a nutritional study and they'd asked people whether they have allergies and rhinitis, that means runny nose, itchy eyes. They'd also looked at whether people had cardiovascular disease, but they hadn't actually looked at the correlation between the two, and that's what he did. And it turned out that people who had reported symptoms of allergy, like hay fever or wheezing, had a two and a half times greater chance of also having or developing heart disease. Now, that may suggest there is an association between the two. It doesn't tell us that allergies cause heart disease. But they might be linked by inflammation, because we know that heart disease is an inflammatory condition of arteries. And we also know that diseases or conditions that increase the overall inflammation in the body accelerate cardiovascular disease. Gum disease is strongly linked as a risk factor for heart disease, probably because if you have inflammation going on in your gums you secrete into the bloodstream various inflammatory stimuli and inflammatory mediators, and this triggers the process of inflammation in the walls of arteries and accelerates arterial disease. It may be that the periodic inflammatory bursts you get with things like wheezing, asthma, hay fever, also increase the general inflammatory tone in your body, and therefore if there is a process of atherosclerosis, arterial damage going on, this is going to accelerate a bit in people with those symptoms who also have a risk of heart disease, therefore you see that association. But that's one study and no one's yet got quite to the bottom of it. I guess it's very difficult to distinguish causation from correlation. Well, that's exactly right. This is an association. To prove causation, you've got to show there's a dose-dependent effect for starters. So you'd have to show that people who had worse allergies had worse heart disease, and I don't think that's very easy to do. Brian Karsh has actually got in touch from Seattle and he said, what happens to light when it hits its target, Dominic? He says, I know that part of the light is converted to heat and part reflects, but the light that reflects 
does it reflect more than once? So, for example, when if I turn off the lights in my house, it seems to be dark instantly. Why is that? Shouldn't there be light bouncing around and ricocheting all over the place? Well, I think the important thing to remember here is that light travels incredibly quickly at about 300,000 kilometres every second. So that's fast enough that it gets from the sun to the earth in about eight minutes. Light certainly does scatter off all sorts of different surfaces. So when you've got a light on your ceiling, that will be illuminating your walls, but your walls appear bright because the light is scattering off those walls. And they'll, for example, preferentially scatter some colours more than others. So the walls in the studio look blue because they're scattering the blue light from the lights above us, but they're not scattering the red light. But they're doing that so incredibly quickly that when you turn the lights out, within about a hundred millionth of a second, all of that light has been absorbed into those walls as heat and so the room is dark. So in fact, when you turn the light out, you'll see the light gradually fades because of the elements in those lights, which are gradually cooling down. And that's a much slower process than how long it takes for light to travel around the room. So if I did have a camera that was sufficiently fast, I would effectively see what's being suggested. But because our eyes aren't sufficiently fast, it appears to us as though it goes dark instantly. Yes, and I think about 18 months ago on this programme, Dave Ansell went a news story where somebody had made a camera that could take millions of frames a second, and by doing that you could actually see light ricocheting around a room. Dominic, thank you. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with me, Dominic Ford. Finally, Hannah Critchlow ponders the power of poo in our question of the week. This week, we get excited over excrement. An anonymous listener touched cloth with this. Can we produce power from poo? We produce loads of the stuff, and it must still have some good stuff in it. So surely scientists can delve away at it to make some electricity? So should we lay cables courtesy of the colon? First up, we asked Dr David Waltner-Toes, author of The Origin of Faeces, is it possible to go fracking for faeces? The energy content of dry manure is about 50% that of coal. Right now, the most efficient way to get that energy is to run the manure through something called an anaerobic biodigester. So the manure is run into a contraption where certain bacteria in the absence of air will capture methane from the manure, which would otherwise be just released into the environment. That methane can then be burned directly. It can be burned in for running trucks, for running machinery, or it can be used to generate energy in a secondary process. So it is possible to get power from poo. Do we currently actually do it, though? We delve into the data. My name's David Mackay. I'm the author of Sustainable Energy Without the Hot Air. I'm the Regis Professor of Engineering at the University of Cambridge, and I'm the Chief Scientific Advisor at the Department of Energy and Climate Change. Looking back in 2006, one of the biggest forms of renewable energy in the UK was collected from methane gas coming from landfill sites and from sewage. The scale of this, well in 2006 it was about 0.3 kilowatt hours per day per person coming from all forms of, of waste and that made it the biggest renewable at the time. Since then wind has overtaken incidentally. And how does that compare with our total energy consumption? Well, our total energy consumption in all forms for transport, heating and electricity is about 125 kilowatt hours per day per person. So we do produce power from poo, but it's not as big as our 
total power consumption at all. And there's no way it could be that big either, because if you think about how much food you eat, the energy in the food you eat is about three kilowatt hours per day per person. And obviously the energy coming out in your poo has to be a bit smaller than that. So yes, poo does produce power, but we currently consume more energy. So also look to the wind, amongst other places, for other sustainable sources of power. Well, making a movement with our next question. Hello, naked scientist. Miriam, County Throne, Northern Ireland. I am approaching the end of my third trimester. The baby has got itself at long last in the right position, though this is where my question lies. An unborn baby's head points downwards in preparation for the birth and can be like that for many, many weeks. If I hung upside down for that long, all my blood would be swimming around my brain and I would be a bit dead. So how come an unborn baby is okay? Thank you. So how does a baby withstand a prolonged headstand in the womb? Are babies the ultimate yoginas? Let us know what you think. Anna Critchlow. And if you'd like to help us out, then you can email your thoughts to chris at thenakedscientists.com. You can tweet at Naked Scientists or speculate away on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thenakedscientists. That's it for this week. Thank you to all of our guests who joined us on the show and thank you to Dominic Ford for joining me. The production was by Kate Lamble. Next week we'll be taking a look at schizophrenia and a new way to combat it with computer animations that represent the voices that patients say they can hear. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and it's supported by the Wellcome Trust and the EPSRC. I'm Chris Smith and thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.